0: section nineteen of mark twain's autobiography this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman private history of a manuscript that came to grief written in nineteen hundred it happened in london not recently and yet not very many years ago an acquaintance had proposed to himself a certain labor of love and when he told me about it, I was interested. His idea was to have a fine translation made of the evidence given in the Joan of Arc trials and rehabilitation, and placed before the English-speaking world. A translation had been made and published a great many years before, but had achieved no currency, and in fact was not entitled to any for it was a piece of mere shoemaker work but we should have the proper thing now for this acquaintance of mine was manifestly a joan enthusiast and as he had plenty of money and nothing to do but spend it i took at par his remark that he had employed the most competent person in great britain to open this long neglected mine and confer its riches upon the public when he asked me to write an introduction for the work my pleasure was complete my vanity satisfied at this moment by good fortune there chanced to fall into my hands a biographical sketch of me of so just and laudatory a character particularly as concerned one detail that it gave my spirit great contentment and also set my head to swelling i will not deny it for it contained praises of the very thing which i most love to hear praised the good quality of my english moreover they were uttered by four english and american literary experts of high authority i am as fond of compliments as another and as hard to satisfy as the average but these satisfied me. I was as pleased as you would have been if they had been paid to you. It was under the inspiration of that great, several-voiced verdict that I set about that introduction for Mr. X's book, and I said to myself that I would put a quality of English into it which would establish the righteousness of that judgment." I said I would treat the subject with the reverence and dignity due it, and would use plain, simple English words and a phrasing undefiled by meretricious artificialities and affectations. I did the work on those lines, and when it was finished I said to myself very privately, uh, but never mind, I delivered the manuscript to Mr. X and went home to wait for the praises on the way i met a friend being in a happy glow over this pleasant matter i could not keep my secret i wanted to tell somebody and i told him for a moment he stood curiously measuring me up and down with his eye without saying anything then he burst into a rude coarse laugh which hurt me very much he followed this up by saying he is going to edit the translations of the trials when it is finished he he said he would why what does he know about editing i don't know but that is what he said do you think he isn't competent competent he is innocent vain ignorant good-hearted red-headed and all that there isn't a better-meaning man. But he doesn't know anything about literature, and has no literary training or experience. He can't edit anything. Well, all I know is he is going to try. Indeed he will. He is quite unconscious of his incapacities. He would undertake to edit Shakespeare, if invited, and improve him, too the world cannot furnish his match for guileless self-complacency yet i give you my word he doesn't know enough to come in when it rains this gentleman's ability to judge was not to be questioned therefore by the time i reached home i had concluded to ask mr x not to edit the translation but to turn that work over to some expert whose name on the title page would be valuable three days later mr x brought my introduction to me neatly type copied he was in a state of considerable enthusiasm and said really i find it quite good quite i assure you there was an airy and patronizing complacency about this damp compliment which affected my head and healthfully checked the swelling which was going on there i said with cold dignity that i was glad the work had earned his approval oh it has i assure you he answered with large cheerfulness i assure you it quite has i have gone over it very thoroughly yesterday and uh, last night and to-day and i find it quite creditable quite i have made a few corrections that is suggestions and do you mean to say that you have ed- oh nothing of consequence nothing of consequence i assure you he said patting me on the shoulder and genially smiling only a few little things that needed just a mere polishing touch uh, nothing of consequence i assure you let me have it back as soon as you can so that i can pass it on to the printers and let them get to work on it while I am editing the translation. I sat idle and alone a time, thinking grieved thoughts, with the edited introduction unopened in my hand. I could not look at it yet awhile. I had no heart for it, for my pride was deeply wounded. It was the only time I had been edited in thirty-two years, except by Mr. Howells, and he did not intrude his help but furnished it at my request and now here is a half stranger obscure destitute of literary training destitute of literary experience destitute of but i checked myself there for that way lay madness i must seek calm For my self-respect's sake, I must not descend to unrefined personalities. I must keep in mind that this person was innocent of injurious intent and was honorably trying to do me a service. To feel harshly toward him, speak harshly of him, this was not the right Christian spirit. These just thoughts tranquilized me and restored to me my better self and I opened the introduction at the middle. I will not deny it, my feelings rose to a hundred and four in the shade. The idea that this long-eared animal, this literary kangaroo, this illiterate hostler with his skull full of axle-grease, this—but I stopped there, for this was not the right Christian spirit. I subjected myself to an hour of calming meditation, then carried the raped introduction to that friend whom I have mentioned above, and showed it to him. He fluttered the leaves over, then broke into another of those ill-bred laughs which are such a mar to him. "'I knew he would,' he said, as if gratified. "'Didn't I tell you he would edit Shakespeare?' Yes, I know, but I did not suppose he would edit me. Oh, you didn't? Well, now you see that he is even equal to that. I tell you, there are simply no bounds to that man's irreverence. I realize it now, I said. Well, what are you going to do? Let him put it in his book, either edited or unedited? Of course not. That is well you are becoming rational again but what are your plans you are not going to stop where you are are you you will write him a letter and give him hark from the tomb no i shall write him a letter but not in that spirit i trust why shan't you because he has meant me a kindness and I hope I am not the man to reward him for it in that way." The friend looked me over a while pensively, then said, "'Mark, I am ashamed of you. This is mere schoolgirl sentimentality. You ought to baste him. You know it yourself.' I said I had no such feeling in my heart, and should put nothing of the kind in my letter i shall point out his errors to him in gentleness and in the unwounding language of persuasion many a literary beginner has been disheartened and defeated by the uncharitable word wantonly uttered this one shall get none such from me it is more christian-like to do a good turn than an ill one and you ought to encourage me in my attitude not scoff at it This man shall not be my enemy. I will make him my lasting and grateful friend." I felt that I was in the right, and I went home and began the letter, and found pleasure and contentment in the labor, for I had the encouragement and support of an approving conscience. The letter will be found in its proper place in this chapter of my autobiography it follows the letter dear mr x i find on my desk the first two pages of miss z's translation with your emendations marked in them thank you for sending them i have examined the first page of my amended introduction and will begin now and jot down some notes upon your corrections if i find any changes which shall not seem to me to be improvements i will point out my reasons for thinking so in this way i may chance to be helpful to you and thus profit you perhaps as much as you have desired to profit me notes section one first paragraph jeanne d'Arc this is rather cheaply pedantic and is not in very good taste joan is not known by that name among plain people of our race and tongue i notice that the name of the deity occurs several times in the brief installment of the trials which you have favored me with to be consistent it will be necessary that you strike out god and put in dieu do not neglect this. First line. What is the trouble with at thee, and why trial? Has some uninstructed person deceived you into the notion that there was but one instead of half a dozen? Amongst. Wasn't among good enough? Next, half-dozen corrections. Have you failed to perceive that by taking the word both out of its proper place you have made foolishness of the sentence? And don't you see that your smug of which has turned that sentence into reporter's English? Quite. Why do you intrude that shopworn favorite of yours where there is nothing useful for it to do? Can't you rest easy in your literary grave without it? Next sentence. You have made no improvement in it. Did you change it merely to be changing something? Second paragraph. Now you have begun on my punctuation. Don't you realize that you ought not to intrude your help in a delicate art like that with your limitations? And do you think you have added just the right smear of polish to the closing clause of the sentence? Second paragraph. How do you know it was his own sword? It could have been a borrowed one. I am cautious in matters of history, and you should not put statements in my mouth for which you cannot produce vouchers. Your other corrections are rubbish. Third paragraph. Ditto. Fourth paragraph. Your word directly is misleading. It could be construed to mean at once. Plain clarity is better than ornate obscurity i note your sensitive marginal remark rather unkind to french feelings referring to moscow indeed i have not been concerning myself about french feelings but only about stating the facts i have said several uncourteous things about the french calling them a nation of ingrates in one place but you have been so busy editing commas and semicolons that you overlooked them and failed to get scared at them. The next paragraph ends with a slur at the French, but I have reasons for thinking you mistook it for a compliment. It is discouraging to try to penetrate a mind like yours. You ought to get it out and dance on it. That would take some of the rigidity out of it, and you ought to use it sometimes. That would help." If you had done this every now and then along through life, it would not have petrified. Fifth paragraph. Thus far I regard this as your masterpiece. You are really perfect in the great art of reducing simple and dignified speech to clumsy and vapid commonplace. Sixth paragraph. You have a singularly fine and aristocratic disrespect for homely and unpretending English. Every time I use go back, you get out your polisher and slick it up to return. Return is suited only to the drawing room. It is ducal and says itself with a simper and a smirk. Seventh paragraph. Permission is ducal, ducal and affected. Her great days were not over. They were only half over. Didn't you know that? Haven't you read anything at all about Joan of Arc? The truth is you do not pay any attention. I told you on my very first page that the public part of her career lasted two years, and you have forgotten it already. You really must get your mind out and have it repaired. You see yourself that it is all caked together paragraph she rode away to assault and capture a stronghold very well but you do not tell us whether she succeeded or not you should not worry the reader with uncertainties like that i will remind you once more that clarity is a good thing in literature an apprentice cannot do better than keep this useful rule in mind Closing sentences. Corrections, which are not corrections. Ninth paragraph. Known history. That word is a polish, which is too delicate for me. There doesn't seem to be any sense in it. This would have surprised me last week. Second sentence. It cost me an hour's study before I found out what it meant. I see now that It is intended to mean what it meant before. It really does accomplish its intent, I think, though in a most intricate and slovenly fashion. What was your idea in reframing it? Merely in order that you might add this to your other editorial contributions and be able to say to people that the most of the introduction was your work? I am afraid that, that was really your sly and unparliamentary scheme certainly we do seem to live in a very wicked world closing sentence there is your empty however again i cannot think what makes you so flatulent two in captivity remainder it is curious and interesting to notice what an attraction a fussy mincing nickel-plated artificial word has for you this is not well third sentence but she was held to ransom it wasn't a case of should have been and it wasn't a case of if it had been offered it was offered and also accepted as the second paragraph shows. You ought never to edit except when awake. Fourth sentence. Why do you wish to change that? It was more than demanded, it was required. Have you no sense of shades of meaning in words? Fifth sentence. Changing it to benefactress takes the dignity out of it. If I had called her a braggart. I suppose you would have polished her into a braggartess with your curious and random notions about the english tongue closing sentence sustained is sufficiently nickel-plated to meet the requirements of your disease i trust wholly adds nothing the sentence means just what it meant before in the rest of the sentence you sacrifice simplicity to airy fussiness second paragraph it was not blood money unteachable ass any more than is the money that buys a house or a horse it was an ordinary business transaction of the time and was not dishonourable with her hands feet and neck both chained etc the restricted word both cannot be applied to three things, but only to two. Fence. You lifted that word from further along, and with what valuable result? The next sentence, after your doctoring of it, has no meaning. The one succeeding it, after your doctoring of it, refers to nothing, wanders around in space, has no meaning and no reason for existing, and is by a shade or two more demented and twaddlesome than anything hitherto ground out of your strange and interesting editorial mill. Closing sentence. Neither for either. Have you now debauched the grammar to your taste? Third Paragraph. IT WAS SOUND ENGLISH BEFORE YOU DECAYED IT. SELL IT TO THE MUSEUM. FOURTH PARAGRAPH. I NOTE THE compliment YOU PAY YOURSELF, MARGINED OPPOSITE THE CLOSING SENTENCE, EASIER TRANSLATION. BUT IT HAS TWO DEFECTS. IN THE FIRST PLACE IT IS A MISTRANSLATION, AND IN THE SECOND PLACE IT TRANSLATES HALF OF THE GRACE OUT OF Joan's REMARK. Fifth paragraph. Why are you so prejudiced against fact and so indecently fond of fiction? Her generalship was not that of a tried and trained military experience, for she hadn't had any, and no one swore that she had had any. I had stated the facts. You should have reserved your fictions. Note. To be intelligible, that whole paragraph must consist of a single sentence. In breaking it up into several, you have knocked the sense all out of it. Eighth paragraph. When the flames leapt up and enveloped her frail form, is handsome, very handsome, even elegant, but it isn't yours. You hooked it out of the costermonger's bride, or the fire-fiend's foe. To take other people's things is not right, and God will punish you. Parched lips? How do you know they were? Why do you make statements which you cannot verify, when you have no motive for it but to work in a word which you think is knobby? Three, THE REHABILITATION. Their statements were taken down as evidence. Wonderful. If you had failed to mention that particular, many persons might have thought they were taken down as entertainment. 4. The Riddle of All Time. I note your marginal remark. Riddle, anglis. Look in your spelling book. We can understand how the genius was created etc., by steady and congenial growth. We can't understand anything of the kind. Genius is not created by any farming process, it is born. You are thinking of potatoes. Note, whenever I say circumstances, you change it to environment. And you persistently change my that's into witches and my witches into that's. This is merely silly, you know. Second paragraph I note your marginal remark to comprehends. I suppose someone has told you that repetition is tautology, and then has left you to believe that repetition is always tautology but let it go with your limitations one would not be able to teach you how to distinguish between the repetition which isn't tautology and the repetition which is closing sentence your tipsy emendation when straightened up on its legs and examined is found to say this we fail to see her issue thus equipped and we cannot understand why that is to say she did not issue so equipped and you cannot make out why she didn't that is the riddle that defeats you labor at it as you may why if that had happened it wouldn't be a riddle at all except to you but a thing likely to happen to nearly anybody and not matter for astonishment to any intelligent person standing by at the time or later. There is a riddle, but you have mistaken the nature of it. I cannot tell how, labor at it as I may, and I will try to point it out to you, so that you can see some of it. We do not fail to see her issue so equipped we do see her that is the whole marvel mystery riddle that she an ignorant country girl sprang upon the world equipped with amazing natural gifts is not the riddle it could have happened to you if you had been someone else but the fact that those talents were instantly and effectively usable without previous training is the mystery which we cannot master, the riddle which we cannot solve. Do you get it?" Third paragraph, Drunk, five, as Prophet and in every case realized the complete fulfillment. How do you know she did that? There is no testimony to back up that wild assertion. I was particular not to claim that all her prophecies came true for that would have been to claim that we have her whole list whereas it is likely that she made some that failed and did not get upon the record people do not record prophecies that failed such is not the custom six her character comforted is a good change and quite sane but you are not playing fair. You are getting some sane person to help you. Note, when I wrote, counseled her, advised her, that was tautology. The to comprehends was a case of repetition, which was not tautological. But I am sure you will never be able to learn the difference. Note, but she, Jeanne d'Arc, when presently she found, etc. That is the funniest yet, and the commonplacest. But it isn't original. You got it out of How to Write Literary Without Any Apprenticeship. Sixpence to the trade. Retail, sevenpence farthing. Erased passage. I note with admiration your marginal remark, explaining your objection to it is it warrantable to assert that she bragged is it in good taste it was assuredly foreign to her character i will admit that my small effort at playfulness was not much of a pearl but such as it was i realize that i threw it into the wrong trough seven her face and form You have misunderstood me again. I did not mean that the artist had several ideas and one prevailing one. I meant that he had only one idea. In that same sentence, omits and forgets have just the same meaning. Have you any clear idea, then, why you made the change? Is it your notion that gross is an improvement on big? perform an improvement on do, inquiring an improvement on asking, and in such wise an improvement on then? Or have you merely been seduced by the fine, large sounds of those words? Are you incurably hostile to simplicity of speech?" and finally do you not see that you have edited all the dignity out of the paragraph and substituted simpering commonplace for it and that your addition at the end is a deliciously flat and funny anticlimax still i note your command in the margin insert this remark and i dutifully obey second paragraph Exploited was worth a shilling there you have traded it for a word not worth twopence apenny and got cheated and serves you right. Read rightly if it shocks you. Close of paragraph you have exploited another anticlimax and in the form too of an impudent advertisement of your book, it seems to me that. For a person of your elegance of language, you are curiously lacking in certain other delicacies. Third paragraph. I must reserve my thanks. Moreover, is a parenthesis, when interjected in that fashion. A parenthesis is evidence that the man who uses it does not know how to write English, or is too indolent to take the trouble to do it. A parenthesis usually throws the emphasis upon the wrong word, and has done it in this instance. A man who will wantonly use a parenthesis will steal. For these reasons I am unfriendly to the parenthesis. When a man puts one into my mouth, his life is no longer safe. Break another lance is a knightly and sumptuous phrase and i honour it for its hoary age and for the faithful service it has done in the prize composition of the schoolgirl but i have ceased from employing it since i got my puberty and must solemnly object to fathering it here and besides it makes me hint that i have broken one of those things before in honour of the maid an intimation not justified by the facts I did not break any lances or other furniture, I only wrote a book about her. Truly yours, Mark Twain. It cost me something to restrain myself and say these smooth and half-flattering things to this immeasurable idiot, but I did it, and have never regretted it for it is higher and nobler to be kind to even a shad like him than just if we should deal out justice only in this world who would escape no it is better to be generous and in the end more profitable for it gains gratitude for us and love and it is far better to have the love of a literary strumpet like this than the reproaches of his wounded spirit therefore i am glad i said no harsh things to him but spared him the same as i would a tapeworm it is reward enough for me to know that my children will be proud of their father for this when i am gone i could have said hundreds of unpleasant things about this tadpole but I did not even feel them. The letter was not sent, after all. The temptation was strong, but pity for the victim prevailed. The manuscript was, however, recalled, and later published in Harper's Magazine, and in book form as St. Joan of Arc. End of section 19. Private history of a manuscript that came to grief written in 1900, and the letter and notes.